Um, so good morning. Hi. It's nice to see you. Um, I'm going to be uh, sharing from the book of Daniel um, over two messages actually today and in two weeks time. And I really hope this encourages and blesses you. It's not something we actually normally talk about, but I'm going to be uh, sharing with you some thoughts around the idea of what we do as Christians and as a church when our culture around us shifts and how we respond to it. And I think that's really timely um, for what we are facing and what our world is like at the moment. I think it's going to be, this is going to be really, really encouraging for you. But I'm going to be sharing from the book of Daniel. But if you don't know me, my name's Wendy, Pastor Wendy. Um, and uh, I became a Christian at the age of 19, which I know I only look 25, so you think, that's not very long. Uh, it was a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, at the age of 19, and my sister actually took me to church when I was 19 years old, and um, she'd become a Christian a month before, and she said, you just need to come to church with me, and I had no idea what I was walking into, and maybe there's some people in the room this morning that had no idea what, it, what you were going to expect when you walked into a church in the morning, um, but that my background and where I was at at the age of 19, I just had just been uh, at Southampton University, was I was from, or I was as a person incredibly broken. Um, for a whole series of, of, of reasons, but I was incredibly broken and, and really had very low self-esteem, very shy, very quiet, um, absolutely terrified of death. I didn't understand why I was on the earth and what I was here for, and um, was really, really broken, and actually had come from a family where in every, every relative, every adult in my family had been divorced. So I was expecting that if I did get married, it would end up in divorce because that's all I'd known. Um, but I was terrified um, of death, and I didn't understand life and what it was all about. And I walked into a service one Sunday night, and I did not have... It was very similar to this, sim, you know, amazing, actually. But I sat there, had no idea what people were saying, didn't know any of the songs, went, what on earth is this? And as I sat in this, on this seat... God just met me. I, I really can't describe what it was, but it was like I just broke down in crying and I just felt this incredible love. I didn't understand a single thing that was happening, but I had an encounter with Jesus that night that changed me forever. And he has done so much in me. I'm, I'm now a teacher. And for someone who is literally terrified of anybody or saying anything, I often now do assemblies in front of 1,200 people. I speak to people. It's just, it's God. He changes our lives, and he is amazing, and he took me as a broken person to somebody who was whole, and somebody who was free, and someone who was brave, and someone who was confident, and that is only what God can do. None of those things were in my power. What I also love about God is how he, it's not only how he changes just one person's life, but he can change a generation. So in my family, I was the first person to break the cycle of divorce. This... Um, <laughs> Just a week or so ago, Paul and I celebrated 25 years of marriage. And none of my family have done that. None of my family have done that. And my children will be the same. And, we have, and God does that. He breaks things. He is a God that restores. And he is, so if you're here this morning for the first time, big welcome to you. Um, but if you're feeling like I did, I don't understand any of this. I promise you, Jesus is here to meet with you. Just relax. Enjoy it. You don't have to understand everything I'm about to say, but what I will want to say to you is God loves you, and he made you, and he has a purpose for your life, and if you're sat in this room, then God is on your side. He is just for you, and he loves you unconditionally. You are just the most beautiful person to him, and he wants to encounter you like he did me. Okay, so in the book of Daniel then, 
Um, if we can get our first scripture up, Dave, thank you very much. In the book of Daniel, we're talking 600 years before Christ. And the book of Daniel is half history book and it's half prophecy. And in two weeks' time when I do part two, I'm going to talk about the prophecy of Daniel because it's really relevant to what's going on in our world at the moment. It's absolutely amazing. But in the time of this story, 600 years before Christ, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had taken over. And Daniel was, and his friends were Hebrew, and they were now under the captivity of the Babylonians, which today is in modern-day Iraq. And the king Nebuchadnezzar worshipped idols. He, had, um, he got consultations from magicians and astrologers. These were people who would advise him. He was godless, and the Babylonians were a godless people. But in the midst of this story, you have Daniel, this Hebrew boy, and his friends who are spirit-led on fire for God, who completely change the culture of this um, empire, really. It's absolutely incredible. And what's interesting, scholars actually think that Daniel was only 16 years old when King Nebuchadnezzar began to rule. And that encourages me, and this is why I've asked Ignition to stay in. It's because, I, you know, this is a 16-year-old, a teenager, who does a couple of things. Number one... He chooses to stand up against the culture of the Babylonians and not bow down to what the king says. He honors God and he stays firm in his faith. And secondly, because of that, God actually raises him up to be an influencer on the culture of his time. And the kings, there's three kings that um, Daniel serves under, all end up rejecting their idols and their gods and worshiping the God because of the influence of Daniel. Young people can stand up against what a generation is doing for God, and they can influence the generation and change lives. And that's the story that I want to have a look at. So Ignition, who are in the room, I have the sweeties ready for you. Just where Mahali's sitting, there is your little sheet. If you want to do your little write-down three things that Pastor Wendy has said this morning, then there's a prize for you at the end. I have to bribe children. I've learned that teenagers and food go well together. So if you want to go to the back, there's a little sheet and there's a pen. And if you feel that we've done this before, come and bring it to me at the end. Anybody who's ignition age, um, just see what God says to you. You're not ignition age, you're too old. But you deserve sweets for leading worship so well. Does the whole worship team um, deserve a little prize? Okay, so let's go to Daniel 1. So it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So just right in the beginning of the book of Daniel, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian leaders were going to force these Hebrew people to learn a different language, to bow down to their culture, to their beliefs, to what they said, the language that they were going to use, and was also going to force them to eat a different type of food, which means Daniel would have to compromise the Hebrew kosher laws around food that God had laid out. 
And it's a picture of what is happening in our culture. Our culture is today that people, and particularly young people, and as a teacher I see this all the time, under a huge amount of pressure to conform and to compromise and to change who they are according to someone else's standard. And what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do is saying, you are all going to follow our beliefs, our language, our rules, our our theories, um, based on what we say. And there was a huge amount of pressure to do that, even to change what they would eat. And so it's a picture of really how our culture is. And really what I want to spend two, two sessions speaking about is how do we respond when our culture is shifting and trying to tell us to do something different? How do we stay honoring God and how do we respond to that? But also, how do we share Jesus in the middle of that? Because what I don't want us to ever think as Christians or as a church is is it our right to judge people. It isn't. The Bible makes it really, really clear that we are not to judge anybody. And as a church, we've got to be really careful that we don't go down a line of actually saying in a hateful and judgmental way, what you say and do is wrong. It's not how Jesus works, and I'm going to come to what Jesus does to connect with people and how he leads them to salvation. But in this book of Daniel, it shows that not only can you stand up for God and not compromise what you believe, but you can also do it in a loving way that influences people to find God themselves. And that's the sort of way we need to respond to our culture. Our culture is shifting. Now, I want to show you this. This has really blew me away when I, when I researched this. But in the book of Daniel, it goes on to say, in Daniel 1.7, that the king tried to basically assimilate Daniel and the other Hebrew people into Babylonian culture by changing their names. Let's have a look at Daniel 1.7. So it says, to Daniel, he gave him the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishael, Meshach, oh my goodness, and to Azariah Abednego. So Daniel and his friends, these four boys, had their names changed by the king. And I looked up what he changed their names into. You'll see up on the slide. So Daniel means God is my judge. The king changed that to Belt, that word, Beltesar, which means lady protect the king. So basically, his gender was changed now called a lady. Happen all the time, isn't it, in our culture? Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious, God's been good to me, now became Shadrach, I am fearful of God, is what his new name meant. And that was a redefined spirituality. Basically, this is what's trying to happen in our culture, the deconstruction of church, trying to get people, Christians, to be confused about what the Bible says and argue about the Bible. Here, His name meant, I am now fearful. I've gone from praising God to now being fearful of God. Nebuchadnezzar is changing their identity and changing their name. That's what culture is trying to do in our society, is really hammer who we are and our identity. Shadrach, done that one. Michelle, who is what God is? In other words, being in awe of God was changed to, I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. The name brought in anxiety and depression, which is also a mark of what our culture, mental health, anxiety, depression is on the rise in a massive way. It's another strategy the enemy uses. And then Azariah means Yahweh has helped. 
Abednego means servant of Nebo, which was one of the major gods of the Babylonians. So it's going from worshipping God to worshipping an idol. So what Nebuchadnezzar was doing was actually changing or or, um, shifting their identity and who they were by changing their name. And, you know, the devil doesn't doesn't have a new playbook. He's doing exactly the same thing now. Identity is something that I see being hammered at young people on social media, through teachers, through their friends. Who you are has been, it's, it's such a big thing in our culture today. And it's, and it's like people are being told who they are by somebody else rather than understanding who they are in God. And our culture is shifting to try and confuse people about identity and to put labels on people about who they are and who you need to be. The devil was doing it in the Babylonian era. He'd done it throughout history and he's doing it again. He doesn't have a new playbook. He just does the same thing because he doesn't want us to know our creator. He wants us to be confused and depressed and anxious and fearful. And what King Nebuchadnezzar was doing was putting those labels onto those four men who were children of God. So, I've been reading this brilliant book by a guy called Andrew Bunch, who goes to my sister's church in Hastings. It's called Finding Your Best Identity. And Andrew Bunt is a, is a leader at the church in Bexhill and also is a senior leader of a movement called Living Out. And he wrote this book because as a teenager, he wrestled with his identity. And for a long time, he thought that he was a girl in a boy's body and he was same-sex attracted to men. And he really struggled with that. And, but as, he, as a teenager, he found Jesus. And his identity became rooted in God and his relationship with God. And he found freedom. And although he still struggles sometimes, he's very open and says sometimes he's still same-sex attracted. He has chosen not to act on that. And he's chosen to live out who he is in God and be free in that. And he's written this amazing book for teenagers and for parents. I would really, really recommend it. I'm going to do a little quote from it later on. But in there, he does a couple of chapters about identity, which really spoke to me. And I want to just use some of his wisdom because he's lived it himself. And he talks about the problem of society, with, particularly with teenagers and young people, is that their whole self-worth, our self-worth and our acceptance and our value is based on performance and whether we fit a standard that the society is trying to, to put on us. And he's, he basically has this section, if you want to move it on, Dave, thank you, to what he calls others to size. He talks about a whole chapter about the problem. If your identity is built in other people deciding who you are and what your value is. So if other people, and we talk about our culture, our teachers, social media, your friends, if they're deciding who you are and your worth, you will stay confused, you will stay in complete insecurity and you'll be miserable. Because if other people try and decide your worth, you will never meet their standard because society is shifting all the time what it is to be successful or to look right, what you have to wear, what you have to call yourself, what your relationship should look like. Society constantly changes. Every year, we've got a new way we have to look or whatever. 
And if that becomes how you form your identity, you will be insecure. You'll never be able to do enough to make people think well of you because the standard always changes. You are under incredible pressure if people's perspective on us is based on how well you or badly you do or how well you meet a criteria. You'll be under huge pressure to perform or act up if in order to be happy or to be accepted by society, you have to meet a criteria. You'll never do it. It's exhausting trying to meet it. And he also talks about the instability. If you root your identity, he says, in what other people say or think at any moment you mess up, then you've lost it. So, for example, if your identity is in your academic achievement or your success at work, and what if you have, you fail all your tests one week and you have a really bad time or your business goes under, then your whole identity is broken because you were rooting it on that one thing. What if your identity is on a relationship and then you have a falling out with that person, you're no longer friends? You're a mess because you rooted it in the wrong thing. If your identity and your self-worth and value comes from somebody else telling you what you should look like, wear, sound like, speak like, what you should call yourself, who you should be in relationship, you will fall apart because that is unstable and it causes confusion. And that's what he found growing up. And it's in his relationship with God that he's got freedom from that. And I'll show you a little quote that he says, which is brilliant in a minute. So let's go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel 1.5 it says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. In other words, he was trying to get them to conform to what they, even what they should eat according to the Babylonian culture, what was acceptable, what should happen, completely breaking what he knew God would want him to do. And look at what Daniel, this 16-year-old, does. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in any way. This brave teenager who was on fire for God chose not to conform to what culture and the Babylonian king were saying. He said, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't honor God. It's not what God wants me to do. I'm not going to do it. Let's keep going and see what happens next. He says in Daniel 1, 12 to 16, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance to what they see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the, This is a bit. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So he made a decision that he wasn't going to be formed or com- compromising himself because of what was expected of him, what the king was saying. And look what God did. For 10 days, he didn't eat from the king's table. Not only did God protect his life, but he flourished and came out looking better than everybody else because he made a stand and said, no, that's not what God wants me to do. The pressure that we are under as, a, as, as people, as young people, as Christians, is that what's going to happen if we don't conform to society or don't you know, choose to compromise? What will happen? Will I not have any friends? Will people hate me? Will I be on my own? What this story tells us is 16-year-old said no, And God promoted him. He flourished and he was honored and protected by God. God will always back you when you you make a choice to stand with what you know is right. Okay, the easiest route is just to cave in to what everybody else is doing and copy, isn't it? And that would have been the easiest thing for Daniel. Do what the king said. Now, what's interesting about Daniel, he doesn't actually 
belittle the king. He doesn't mock the king. He doesn't criticize the king. He's very honorable. But he just says, that's not what I want to do. And God honored him for that. It's absolutely amazing. Okay, so if we're not going to uh, think about what others say, let's have a look at the next bit. The second chapter I read was amazing. This is where Andrew Bunt has come to. He's decided, or he wrote an amazing chapter about this idea that God decides our identity. That the only place we find value and worth and strength and acceptance and happiness is when we allow God to define who we are rather than others. And um, a couple of scriptures there that show that God has done that. You can see there in Jeremiah, a very famous scripture. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. See, identities and who we are was decided by God before we were even born. That's who's formed us. He's created us. Every individual, whether you know God or not, he created you in your mother's womb. And you were created for a destiny. And you were created for a purpose. And you were created in the image of God. And you were created perfect. And that's where your identity sits. In the fact that you're God's and he made you. And nobody else has a right to tell you who you are. Amen? Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's really, really clear on gender, male and female. It's really clear. And God has made us in his image, and he's made us perfect. And so we just, if we know that, and if we know who we are and whose we are, that's where our security and strength comes from. And the world will always confuse us. It will change its opinion about what's acceptable. God never does. Let's have a little look at what happens when you let God decide your identity. This is amazing. Number one, your self-worth and value is based on your relationship with your creator. And all that matters is what God says about you. So who cares if your friends are there one minute and now they don't want to have anything to do with you anymore? That doesn't change how God feels about you. Okay, people come and go. The world is fickle. Society will keep changing its mind about what we should look like and what's acceptable. But if we don't listen to that and we know who we are, then we'll have that consistency and that strength. Love, he loves us for who we are. We are his children. God is consistent. The world isn't. Culture keeps shifting. God never shifts. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the only thing we can stand on is God himself. He's the only thing that's permanent. Our identity is rooted in what Christ has done, not our actions, feelings, or abilities. This is so liberating. Christ has died for you and me. He went to the cross to save us. And he gave his life so that we could be free, forgiven, and in relationship with God. And that will never change. Okay, God will never change his opinion of Christ. Our identity in him never changes. It's completely set. And if we are, you know, rooted in him, if we know him as our savior, then it doesn't matter about whether we get things right or wrong, we have a bad day, a good day. God doesn't change his mind. He is completely obsessed and in love with us, and we're his kids. And it doesn't matter. But in society, your friends can, like, you have a bad day, you mess up, they don't know you anymore. You're not my friend, you're not part of this group. It happens all the time. I see it as a teacher. It's heartbreaking. But that's not who God is. He never rejects us. He is consistent. Amen? It relieves the pressure and brings you into freedom. Our identity is secure. We are loved and accepted when we, and we have purpose because we are God's workmanship. We are a new creation and we have a new way of living. And so it doesn't really matter what culture says or does. We stay firm 
and secure on the rock of Jesus. And we are, we're able just to flourish. We can get things wrong. God will forgive us. We might fail at something. God doesn't care. He loves us anyway. We might not meet a certain standard of society. God says, I love you anyway. Uh, we might fail at something. We might not thrive at something. People might reject us. God never does. The only way young people in particular who are really getting hammered about who they are and being forced to believe things that society or social media or whatever is saying in them, the only way of, of navigating a changing culture, a shifting culture, is to know who created you and to know him as your saviour and have a relationship and know that everything you're worth is based on what he says about you and what he says about you is beautiful. You don't, it doesn't matter if you mess up. It doesn't matter if things change. He never changes his opinion about you. He is your father, and he loves you unconditionally. And society doesn't know that. It rejects people all the time. You're never going to meet a standard. It's always changing. Amen? So let's go to Andrew Bunt. Here he is. And I just, I just wanted to put this up because this is a guy who's lived it and had to struggle. And his organization, Living Out, that he's created and works for is amazing. It actually helps Christians who are struggling with gender, identity, and sexuality and how to find who they are in God. He's amazing, this guy. But this is what he wrote. But as a follower of Jesus, I know that neither my sexuality nor my gender is my identity. I am not what I feel or what I desire. I am made in the image of God and I am loved with the same love that he loves his son. I'm a child of God and my best life is found in living out the pattern that my father in heaven has given in his word. God doesn't ask me to suffer by denying who I am. He's invited me to thrive by embracing who he says I am. He's invited me to thrive by embracing who he says I am. What an awesome guy. Um, yeah, so parents... I would really, at the back, at the, one of the back of this book says, parents, you need this book. It's brilliant for navigating young children and teenagers, considering how, you know, what they're taught in schools. I would really recommend it. And for young people, I'll probably do another session ignition with you guys on this um, soon, because I think it's really, really important. So one thing I just want to say as we move on is, um, in terms of uh, under, the way we navigate this, it's not only knowing who we are in God and knowing what we believe, but we also need to have a heart, the heart of Jesus for people. I really, really, really have this strongly on my heart that we have to be people of incredible empathy. Our culture, people who don't know God, are lost, just like I was. They don't know any different. They may be pushing an agenda on social media. They may be trying to get people to do and dress certain ways or do certain things. But if you don't know who made you, and you are not connected to the one that created you, you will look for anything to get worth. And that's all people are doing. The way they're dressing, what they're saying, whatever they're doing, they are just lost. And if you don't know who made you, if you don't know your creator, you will look for self-worth and happiness from anything. Any group that you join, anybody you follow online, friends that will affirm you, dressing a certain, whatever. These are people that God loves. These are people that are broken and they don't know who they are. And when they don't know who you are, you will grab anything to find happiness. And that's all our culture, our society is doing. People that don't know God are just desperately trying to be happy. And they'll look anywhere. And if somebody on TikTok or whatever, well, look at me, it'll be trendy. TikTok, <laughs> I don't know what that is. I do know what it is, but I'm never going to be on it. 
Thank, praise the Lord. I'm not even on Facebook, people. That's just how radical I am. And Instagram, that went out the window a little while ago because that's a bit crazy, isn't it, Instagram? Anyway, so I'm not on those things. Anyway, uh, but, you know, I, when, you, you, when you look at people, I, my heart just breaks for them because I can see that all their behavior is because they don't know God. They don't know who made them, so they're desperately trying to find worth from something. And that's all our culture's doing. That's all it's doing. It's broken people. These are people. These are human beings that God loves and created. And we have to have a heart of compassion and be broken for them. And understand that what they're saying and doing isn't because they don't know any better. And there's a spirit behind it. There is an enemy at work destroying their identity and trying to keep them from God. That's all that's happening. So uh, six things that I think we can do then when culture shifts. How do we respond? These are really nice and quick and then I'm done. So, first of all, number one, just like Daniel, we don't compromise our standards. You know, there's this saying, isn't there? If it, feel good, if, it feel good, if it feels good, just do it. It's right. That's not how God works. <laughs> God wants us to be holy. And so, just doing things that feel right, just because it's, it, it feels right or good, is not biblical. Daniel could have just ate the food because it, was, it would have felt okay to do. But he realized that he'd be compromising what God was saying to him. God calls us to holiness and to follow this, to follow the, to follow the Bible. And this is our guide. So we all have to make up our mind about what truth is. And we all have to make up our mind about who we're going to serve and what we're going to follow. Amen? When culture shifts and when you're under real pressure to try and fit in and be accepted... Like Daniel was, he could have fit in and just bowed down to the king's demands. He chose this over compromise. He knew what God was saying to him. One of the things we have to remember is that heaven is our home, but the earth isn't. The Bible says that we're in the world, but we're not of it. And we're people that have an eternity. And so we have to keep this mindset that we might be living on the earth, but we are heaven-bound. And when we stand before God we will have to give account for how we've lived on the earth. Everybody does. And that will be the choices that we make, the decisions we make, whether we choose to follow God or not, what we, conversations we have. We will stand before God for those things. And we need to understand that we're living with an assignment on earth to reach people for Christ, but not to live as the world does. We are different. We are different people. And so we have to kind of get that right. Um, let's have a look at this, what it says about Daniel on the next bit. I love this bit. So now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, which are like the mayors, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in the conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could not find any corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel. In his effort not to compromise, two things happened. Not only did the king raise him up to be in charge of the whole kingdom, this is somebody who was not compromising what the king said and not doing what the king was asking, but they found nothing against Daniel. He was honorable, he was trustworthy, he was loyal, he was completely just because he kept his standard is what God said he should do. And look again, second time, God is promoting him again above everybody else 
You know, we can think that if we, if we stand for God, that we're going to suffer. Daniel didn't suffer. God promoted him. And people were in awe. They had nothing to charge against him. And they were like, this man is, there's something on this man. This young boy, what is it? And it was God's favor on his life. And they could see it and they couldn't, they had no charge. God will always honor you standing up for him. Number two, so when culture shifts, we need to know what we believe. In this scripture here in Joshua 24, it says, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped. And it says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We need to make a decision. You as an individual, as a church, we've made that decision. That's who we're going to serve and who we're going to follow. But I believe as families, you need to make that decision as well. What is your family going to stand on? Who are you going to serve? Are you going to bow down to what culture is putting on you? Or are you going to say, no, we're going to follow God. And we're going to trust him and we're going to let him uh, um, rule our lives. Let him be the Lord of our lives, I should say. We need to know. And we actually need to know that now because I think things are going to get harder. And we don't want to be having to make up that mind in a few years. We need to know now what we believe and who we're going to follow. Amen? Number three, pray. You know, what is going on here in the book of Daniel and what is going on in our society now we know it's a spiritual battle, okay? And if you, don't, if you haven't heard this before, there, we, there is a God. He created the universe, but there is also a devil, a fallen a devil who, who is kicked out of heaven called Satan. And he operates in people's lives if people don't know him. And he is the spirit, that, that is the spirit that was ruling the Babylonians because they were worshipping idols and had magicians and stuff. And there's a spirit of force against people and our young people today in our society. This is nothing new. The devil's same trick that he tries. And it says here, doesn't it, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities. That God calls us to pray, not against people. We don't attack people. We love people. But there is a spiritual force that is trying to destroy people's lives. And uh, our job is to pray for people that we come into contact in our family and our, our friends in our, you know, workplaces and pray for their freedom, that they would find God. There is a spirit behind this. So it's, we never attack people. This is not people's fault. This is what a demonic spirit is doing behind the scenes. Next one, stand for God. In the Message Bible, I love this. It says, stand up for me against world opinion and I'll stand up bef- before you before my Father in heaven. We do need to know what we believe, and we need to be willing to say it. Um, in the story of uh, Stephen, um, you should find in Acts 7, Stephen was actually the first Christian martyr to be stoned to death. And what's really interesting about his story is this only time in the Bible where this particular phrase is said about Jesus. So as you know, hope most of you know, when Jesus died and he rose again after three days, he ascended to heaven after being with his disciples for a while, And the Bible tells us that he is seated at the right hand of God, that he's in this position of authority where he's sat down. And um, he is now interceding on behalf of his people. Um, But when you look at the story of the stoning of Stephen, it says something different about Jesus. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he was being stoned, he was being murdered. He looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus is sat on his throne, 
But when Stephen stands up for him to the point that he dies for what he believes in, Jesus stands and rises for Stephen and looks down at him. When you stand for God, Jesus will stand for you. That's what happened with Stephen. He literally rose up. He's like, come on, you're mine. Look at what you're doing. And he was there for Stephen. When you stand for God, Jesus stands with you. And that's what, that's what happens. You don't have, ever have to be afraid to speak truth. So let's go on to the last bit. How do we then respond to people we come into contact with, of the world that is so broken, just like I was? We need to be a church that does two things. Never, never lowers our standard to, to what the world says. But we need to love people and reach people like Daniel did and like Jesus did. Now, Jesus said it's the sick that need the doctor. And that's what many people in our world did. Jesus would describe their, them as sick, just not knowing their saviour. And we have to see people in that light, to love them the way Jesus did, and to understand what's going on behind the scene. So as a church, um, this is kind of um, really what I want to kind of finish on. And then next time I speak, I'm going to talk about the fiery furnace and also the influence that Daniel had on the kings and the prophecy that he had. Because, you know, the fiery furnace is actually a picture of the pressure that the culture was going to put. It, it's going to get a little bit harder. And a furnace is like when you're under real, real pressure to conform and to do what someone's saying. And it's really interesting how that story pans out and also what um, Daniel was saying and prophesying in the dreams he was interpreting and how God used him to influence and to bring a king to, to salvation. It's amazing. So we're going to go into that in, in part two. So I wanted this, this scripture here in John 1.14 talks about Jesus, the word, becoming flesh, making his dwelling among us. And it says that we have seen the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, who was full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And that is exactly how, as Christians and as a church, we need to respond to people in our world. See, the problem that church, some churches have, or what is happening in some churches around the world, is they're just going down one or the other. So, for example, the truth line, truth, 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 is you're a sinner, you're going to hell, you know, what you're doing is disgusting, except, and it's hateful. But there's some truth to it, because if we don't know God, we will go to hell, that is true. But it's just truth, 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 and it's really hard, and that's how some churches are speaking. The other end is grace, 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 which basically says God loves you and you can do whatever you like. And he doesn't mind, just do whatever you like. He loves you anyway. And they say we're doing that in love. Um, but that actually is harming people because God is not like that. He does love us, but he wants us to change. He doesn't want us to stay in our sin and our deception. God's version of love, what it means to him, is to set somebody free and bring them into a place of freedom. So if we just say grace, 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 do what you like, no one cares, you know, do whatever you want, then actually what we're doing is helping people stay in their, in their deception and their, free, and their sin God's version of love is to say, I want to call you out of that. I love you for who you are, but there's a better way of living. And so you have to get grace and truth together. That's how Jesus operated. So what we mean by truth, then, truth is God's standard. You know, God gets to pick right or wrong. If we get to pick what's right and wrong, then we're all God's. 
There's only one God, and he gets to pick the standard of what's right and wrong. He says in John 17, this, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So the Bible is the truth that we follow. And grace just means God's favor. So when Jesus operated, when he did his three years ministry, he was moving in the Roman Empire that was incredibly corrupt and immoral and awful stuff was happening. And that was, his, that was the culture that he was um, in. But his response to people in that culture was grace and truth. And the reason we need to do the same, if you look at the next one, Dave, thank you, it says, without truth, which is God's word, we end up just becoming worldly like everybody else. Without grace, we'll just become judgmental, thinking that we know better and that we can judge everybody. And we can't do that either. We have to be ready and able to lead people to the God who is the answer for what they're in, not judging them for where they are, but showing them. And no one's going to want God if they think he's judgmental and hateful, and that's how we behave. That's not how Jesus did it. If we go to the next one, I just want to kind of finish this. This is really awesome. This is how Jesus operated. He connected, and then he corrected. He did grace first, and then he did truth. He never condemned. He never judged. He loved people, and then he said, and here's a better way. Here's how you need to live. But he also went for grace first. The religious leaders, remember, were really angry at Jesus all the time because he spent his time with prostitutes and tax collectors and he was hanging out with them all the time, just loving on them, just sitting with them because he saw them as broken people and he had a compassion for them. He didn't judge anybody. Let's just finish with these two stories and then we'll kind of finish there. Uh, you remember the story of Zacchaeus up a tree? He's a short one like me, couldn't see anything. I'm like this. Um, in this beautiful story, he is this tax collector that everybody hated, and he had actually ripped people off, so he had been doing a little bit of naughty stuff. But he hears Jesus is coming to town, and he goes up this tree, and the crowd are like having a go at him, and no one likes him, and he's like really bad, etc. What does Jesus do? He walks up to him, and this huge crowd, and he just spots him, and he says, "Do you know what? Should we have a cup? Should we have some lunch? Would you like some lunch? Can I come to your house for a cup of tea? And can we have some lunch?" He doesn't mention his job. He doesn't say, you've been ripping people off. He doesn't say anything to Zacchaeus. He says, can we just hang out? And the Bible doesn't actually record their conversation. I wish it did. I'd love to know what they talked about. How amazing. But at the end of that conversation, he gets saved, he repents, and he starts paying back all the money, double fold, of what he had stolen. He was confronted with truth, but he first connected with Jesus. He just loved him and said, let's have some lunch. Let's just hang out. Let's just chat. That's all Jesus did. The other one, on the right-hand side there, the woman caught in adultery. So she was about to be stoned by all, this, all these men. And Jesus just comes up to her. It's beautiful. He comes up to her and he just says, I don't condemn you. And he fully, fully protects her. Gets on her and he begins to write in the sand. Now, we don't know what he wrote. Maybe he was writing all of their mistresses' names. <laughs> Um, all the pic- but whatever he did, it completely embarrassed them. He saw into their hypocrisy and into their heart and their judgment, and he begins to, and they all begin to leave. And she is left there, literally on the ground, with Jesus basically standing by her side, saying, "I don't con- condemn you, so that's grace, but don't do it anymore." 
because God isn't, doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants us to change, amen? So he still, she still says, you need to stop doing that. That's the truth bit. But he connected with grace, and then he confronted the sin. But by then, she was overwhelmed by the fact that he had saved her life and loved her and hadn't judged her. And she was willing to listen. People won't listen to us if they find us judgmental. We have to have conversations. We need to hang out with people. We need to just get on their level and understand they don't know any better. But they need to know God. They don't know their creator and they are missing that hole. And that's what we need to do. Amen? So, in two weeks' time, I will continue the story. But that is it for today. I'm going to pray for you guys. We're also going to pray for the youth in a minute because they're about to go on summer camp tomorrow. So jealous. If I was younger... I know I would be joining you. I don't think I can do the 2 a.m. still awake um, in the dormitories being crazy people. I'm in bed by 8 o'clock. Uh, so, but anyway, you're going to have an amazing time. So I'm going to pray for you guys in a minute. But can you stand? I just want to let's just stand and get our, our, up from our chairs for a minute. And let's just pray for a minute. And uh, Lord, I, just, I thank you for this word. It's not something we normally talk about. But Lord, I believe that this is timely for us just to understand the culture we're living in and our job as Christians as a church to respond well and in love to people. Lord, I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you that that they are loving and they are generous and they are kind and I thank you that they have a heart after you. And Father, I pray for wisdom for all of us that we would know how to navigate the, the things that are being thrown at us, that we would make good choices on, based on your word to follow you and not compromise, but to love well, to be generous, to understand the brokenness of our world around us and to be people of compassion. Jesus, that we would reach people as you did by connecting and then sh- showing truth. But ultimately, God, that you would use us, Lord, to reach the people around us. I pray over our young people, God, who are facing this pressure even uh, more than anybody in schools and on social media, that they would know their identity in you, that they would not be swayed or pressured by what other people say, but they will decide that who they are in you and and what you've created them to be is what they're going to stick to. And you'll give them courage and bravery, God to be different in the culture that they're growing up in, in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for people in this room that may not know you this morning. And Father, I pray like you did for me when I was 19 years old. You just loved on me, and I just knew that you were real. Father, I pray that you would just um, do the same for anybody in this room that doesn't know you this morning, that you would reach down right now, God, and just reveal yourself, that you are their perfect Father, that you love them unconditionally. And that they are just the apple of your eye and you died for them. Jesus, save souls this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.